Hello there, friends. It is I, David Lightbringer, and like the White Heart, I have appeared before you in full shining majesty, or at least in a bright white t-shirt. And I'm here with your weekly symbolism review. That's right, your handy-dandy guide to the signs, portents, and omens which came walking out of the woods and caves of episode three. I've never been one for signs and portents, Your Grace. Much to my delight, House of the Dragon appears to be using symbols, omens, and mythology to great effect. And decoding these things is, of course, a great way to tease apart the themes of the episode. That's right, symbolism is not just fun trivia, because the symbols in the episode give us great insight to where the characters are in their arcs and who they're becoming. Symbolism is extra important on season one of House of the Dragon because of course they're doing all these time skips. And that means that every scene is kind of like a symbol which needs to represent an entire window of time and everything that's been going on during that time. How the relationships have been evolving, how the people have been evolving. So yeah, the scenes themselves act as symbols and they are themselves full of symbols. If any of that sounds abstract to you, don't worry, because you'll see what I mean right away in this first bit about Damon, Caraxes, and the Crab Feeder. And you know I'm going to tell you all about the White Stag and the various omens on the hunting expedition, of which there were many. So click the thumbs up and the red subscribe button if you haven't already, and let's get to feasting on all this lovely symbolism. Did I say lovely symbolism? Sorry, I meant absolutely nightmarish hellscape symbolism. That's right, our episode opens in a real, actual, living hell on Bloodstone Island in the Stepstones. Which, of course, is meant to evoke the great evil of the Bloodstone Emperor, a very ancient lore from Yi Ti and Ashai about the Long Night. Lore aside, though, the hell imagery is quite obvious. We've got the fires and rolling clouds of smoke and fog, which kind of evoke the burning lake of fire from the Bible, the flesh torture, which is always an underappreciated aspect of hell in my opinion, and then there's the demonic mask of the crab feeder, who is called the betrayer by the victim who kind of acts as our window into the nightmare that's been going on here for some two to three years. The crab feeder is of course crucifying people also, which adds an extra layer of anti-Christ demonic imagery. So, as we all know, you can't throw a good reenactment of Hell Party without Caraxes, of course, who enters the episode whistling in from the distance and stepping on people. But, of course, it's better to be crushed by a giant dragonfoot than eaten alive slowly by medium-sized crabs. Revenge of Hell Celtigar! Why weren't we included in the show? We're Valerians too, dammit! As we can see, Damon and the devil-horned Caraxes are the real lords of this hell, not the crab feeder, who of course scrambles away at the mere sight or sound of the dragons. So here's the point of all the symbolism in this ridiculous t-shirt that I'm wearing. This war has become Damon's personal hell. The Valarions are caught in it too. Notice the scene opening with a burning Valarion sail to represent this. But the episode literally begins with Damon in a dark place because he's in a dark place emotionally. He's chasing the crab feeder through this personal hell. Hey, wait. Your own personal crab feeder. Well, I'll have to work on that. Uh, but really, the crab feeder represents Damon's silent inner demons 
caused by his falling out with his brother. The episode depicts that inner turmoil by having Damon literally beat the messenger from his brother Viserys. Everyone knows that shooting the messenger is an obviously wrong thing to do. That's why it's an expression. And thus, this scene informs us that Damon is out of control and in the grips of his rage. So then comes the climactic action sequence, which I liked a lot, despite the plot armor that seemed to keep Damon alive during those first few arrow volleys. Although I actually don't think it's that bad with all the smoke and debris and movement on the battlefield, the distance of the archers, and their potential suspect accuracy. There was actually a thematic point behind all this though, as was noted in the inside the episode. Really, all of it is a suicide run, and it's kind of astonishing because at every point Damon should die. Essentially, Damon would rather die than win with help from his brother, especially since Damon's death would probably still serve to spring the trap on the crab feeder and thus win the battle. Now, to really master his demons, Damon, of course, must venture into the Cave of the Soul, where the dragon fire cannot help him and take care of this himself. When Damon reemerges from the cave back into the sunlight, victorious with the crab feeder's severed torso in hand, we're supposed to understand that Damon has now triumphed over his inner demons and has been reborn. And that's the thing I like about it is that he came there to die and he really meets death in the face and is reborn. It's a private struggle though, so we don't get to watch, even though I know some people were clamoring to see the actual fight with the crab feeder. Just imagine it as a more violent version of Luke Skywalker's visionary cave experience confronting Darth Vader, and you'll have the idea. So hopefully you see what I mean now. Peeling apart this symbolism, sorry, sorry, really does make the whole thing richer and helps us understand what the characters are going through emotionally on the inside. Since this isn't a book, we don't have all the inner monologue, of course, so the show has to use visual symbols to help draw out the thoughts and feelings of the players. And that's just what they've done with Damon here, who doesn't speak a word past the opening scene where he's calling out to the crab feeder that he will feed him to his own crabs. That Damon does, because he's a man of his word. From crabs we are born, to crabs we will return. All right, it's stag time. Now, I promise not to go overboard with this. It's gonna take some restraint, but I really do have to keep this video short or else I won't be able to give it to you on Wednesday morning, which is hopefully right now for you. So as Viserys is told, the White Heart is a very sacred animal which is attached to the old mythology of Westeros. As Ryan Condal explains after the episode, this concept is taken from classic European folklore, Celtic and Arthurian folklore specifically, where the white stag represents a collection of similar and related ideas. The white heart can represent the other world in various ways. So for instance, it can mean that someone is trespassing on the border to the other world, or that those powers are stirring. Or the white heart can represent a call to a great quest, sometimes a quest for immortality. Ryan Condal refers to it as a symbol of divine royalty, which encompasses both the idea of kingship and divinity. And in general, the stag is regarded as the king of the forest. Now, setting aside the wilder theories about the origins of the Ironborn and how their ancestors worshipped the Deep Ones, and by worshipped I mean had sex with, in case that's not clear. So setting that aside, and I don't know why I would bring that up really, the oldest religion among the humans in Westeros appears to be the worship of Garth the Green, aka Garth the Gardener, aka Garth Greenhand. No, not that kind of Greenhand, that's just a bit of green screen, that's something different. 
In any case, Garth the Green is essentially George Martin's representative of the classic horned god family of mythical beings that includes Kernunos, the Green Man, the Oak and the Holly King, and many others. Garth the Green is a giant, green-skinned fertility god with antlers on his head like a stag. And he was indeed worshipped throughout ancient Westeros, as I documented in the livestream called Religions of the First Men. Garth was especially popular in the Reach and also in the Riverlands around the God's Eye and the Stormlands just south of the Kingswood, as evidenced by the Baratheon tradition of dressing up like a horned god, which they adopted from the very ancient line of House Durandon, who descend from the first men of the Dawn Age of Westeros. So what does Garth the Green have to do with the White Heart? Well, in Celtic folklore, Kernunos is the horned fertility god, and his sacred animal or animal avatar is the White Heart. And this is most likely the origin of the subsequent European folklore about the White Stag or White Heart. Accordingly, just as the White Stag is generally regarded as the king of the forest and a messenger from the Otherworld, so too is Kernunos, who adds the title Lord of the Underworld to his Lord of Animals and Lord of the Forest. Titles, titles. Kernunos is the Lord of the Afterlife because he's a psychopomp figure, which means that he guides souls in their crossing to the afterlife. Garth the Green is essentially a green Kernunos, so yes, it makes a lot of sense to say that the White Heart was the symbol of divine royalty in ancient Westeros, before the Targaryens came. For Garth the Green was regarded not only as a god, but as the first High King of the First Men. And it is from him that the mighty Gardener Kings of the Reach and the antlered Durandon Kings of the Stormlands claimed divine authority. As a matter of fact, even the golden coins of Westeros tell the story. Now they are golden dragons, of course, with Targaryen kings on them. But before Aegon's conquest, they were called golden hands. And they depicted the faces of gardener kings on one side and a hand on the other, with the hand being the sigil of House Gardener. So here's the most important thing to know about seeing a white stag. It's a powerful omen, and it's okay to chase it. But it becomes a powerfully bad omen if you kill it. That's right, it's basically the worst idea ever for the king to kill the king of the Kingswood. When we say that the White Heart is the symbol of the ancient divine royalty of the land, it means that it's literally a representation of the king, so the king would be cursing himself to kill it. Now this is actually the second time that Sir Otto has encouraged Viserys to bring a kind of curse upon himself, because it was also his idea to make Rhaenyra the heir and to send Damon away. And of course, you'll remember that the moment that Viserys carried that idea out is when he cut his hand on the oracle that is the Iron Throne. As I joked last week, Viserys has a rotten hand and a rotten hand of the king. And this week we see that Viserys has now lost two fingers. So yeah, this hunt is a bad idea. Just as it was a bad idea when King Robert, like King Viserys before him, fled his political duties to go drunk hunting after a white heart in this very same Kingswood. Robert never found the stag, at least not alive. They found its remains, which had been savaged and eaten by a wolf. And instead, Robert found himself a giant black boar to face off with, which he calls a devil. Robert wasn't as lucky as Sir Criston and suffered a mortal wound from the boar. And as he's dying, Robert speaks of the boar as some kind of divine judgment against him. The gods sent the boar, sent to punish me. King Viserys parallels Robert extensively in this episode. I'm sure many of you noticed that. And he actually echoes Robert after returning from killing the brown stag. 
you feeling, husband? The gods have punished me for my indulgences. No, they've punished you for making an absolute desecration of this entire hunt. Not only is hunting the White Heart a bad idea, we then see the very dishonorable and messy killing of the brown stag that the other people have tied up for Viserys to slaughter. It's a very bad omen for Viserys and young Aegon, and perhaps for all of House Targaryen, actually. So check this out. This is pretty freaking neato. So in this scene, a Lannister hands a Targaryen his golden spear to kill a stag, which is the symbol of House Baratheon. The Baratheon stag is black, and this one is dark brown, so it's pretty close. So this would be like an inverse symbolic foretelling of the fall of House Targaryen, where a Lannister lion, Jaime, helps a Baratheon stag, Robert, become king by killing a dragon, Mad King Ares, with his golden sword. Or you could even say that here, Jason Lannister gives his golden spear to King Viserys, with a stag being the victim. And then in the future, Jaime gives his golden sword to King Aerys, who is himself the victim. Either way, you can see the parallels. So blame the entire fall of House Targaryen on Viserys here. He's angered the old gods so deeply that they sent an antler hat wearing champion to avenge them. Did someone say horny? And the Lannisters, well, they're just opportunists who like killing. Lions, in other words. Finally, we come to Rhaenyra, who of course shows mercy to the White Hart when it appears to her atop a hillside in the sunlight standing under a tree. And by the way, Kernunos, the horned god, is not only associated with the White Hart, but also with the sun. He's a solar deity. In any case, Rhaenyra may not be very good at politics in this episode, which we discussed in the post-game show, but she's definitely better at symbolism than her dad. Lord Jason Lannister. I gathered that from all the lions. This encounter is a very hopeful omen for Rhaenyra, and similar to Daemon's emergence from the cave, I think this experience will turn out to represent something of a turning point in her character arc. You can actually already see that reflected in her confident stroll back into the camp, bloody and dragging the dead boar behind her. And remember that the boar symbolized the devil for King Robert. So, like Daemon, Rhaenyra has slain her demons. Slaying demons is messy work, and Rhaenyra's definitely a bloody mess. But hey, this guy right here likes it. That's Harwin Strong, aka Breakbones. You can see there's various reactions to Rhaenyra's return, but everybody notices, and certainly she's giving a lot of them something to like and to be impressed with here. In direct contrast to her sort of losing her cool with her father and storming out of the camp the day before. Rhaenyra is developing a bit of a reputation as being hot-tempered, obviously, but she's also developing the reputation of being a bit of a warrior here with this hunt and with her flying her dragon right into the tense situation on Dragonstone in the last episode. So just as Viserys parallels King Robert on his hunt in many ways, Rhaenyra has essentially inverted King Robert's symbolic journey. Unlike all the other people in the woods, Rhaenyra didn't set out into the forest to kill. And so the white stag appeared to her, where it eluded Robert on his hunt. Robert, of course, turned from hunting the stag to hunting the boar and then suffered a fatal wound. He was, of course, too drunk, thanks to Lannister treachery, and ordered his Kingsguard to stand aside. Whereas Rhaenyra is found by a boar, but saved by her Kingsguard, who is loyal to her because, as he said in the episode, well, I'll just let the people's champion deliver the line. Not so long ago, you held enough power to write my name into the White Book. 
When your father named me to his king's guard, it was the highest honor any Cole had ever known. All that I have, I owe to you. So there you have it. Rhaenyra has successfully navigated the omens of the wood, emerged unscathed and more powerful, and blessed by the White Heart. I also can't help but notice that as the King's Landing portion of the episode opens, Rhaenyra is reading peacefully under a White Heart tree. And yes, I'm making a wordplay joke there with Heart Tree and White Heart. But of course, the Weirwoods are closely, closely tied to Garth the Green, who's like a green Carnunos, whose symbol is the White Heart. As a matter of fact, the same H-E-A-R-T heart and H-A-R-T heart symbolism and wordplay is in use with Stannis' sigil, which shows a burning heart, as in a stag, inside a burning heart, as in a giant red heart. Then Melisandre and Stannis go on to burn heart trees, including the ancient one at Storm's End. And they also force the wildlings to burn weirwood to cross the wall. So yeah, white heart tree. It's George's version of classic Celtic folklore, and it's pretty cool that House of the Dragon is using it. So what does this mean for Rhaenyra? Well, it's obviously a very good omen in general, and it's probably intended as an affirmation that Rhaenyra is the rightful heir to the throne. Viserys himself affirms that very thing in a touching vow to Rhaenyra at the end of the episode, so that seems like a safe interpretation. I also can't help wonder if it might portend something about the Starks. We know the Starks are going to come into the story at some point, and I expect their sort of small to medium-sized role in Fire and Blood to be expanded upon a little bit in House of the Dragon. They are the Starks, after all. So we'll just have to keep our eyes on any Starks that Rhaenyra meets, or perhaps people from any other houses that worship the old gods, such as other northern houses or House Blackwood. Or perhaps, and this is probably more likely, this could be about Rhaenyra carrying forward the knowledge of Aegon's prophecy and the bloodline that will lead to the heroes of the Long Night, Jon and Daenerys. The old gods care a lot about that, and they've been involved in the generations of Targaryens leading up to the birth of Danny and Jon via the ghost of the High Heart, who gets her prophetic dreams from the Weirwoods and who foretold that the prince that was promised would be born of the current line of House Targaryen. I'll also note that before the hunt, Rhaenyra says that the squeals of the dying boar sound like a dying child. And right after this, the camera cuts to baby Aegon dropping his toy dragon. So, two observations here. One, Rhaenyra later takes out her repressed anger on the boar when it threatens her with its death throes. So, this would seem to be foreshadowing a growing rivalry with her half-brother Aegon, who we know Otto Hightower and his very sinister brother Hobart want to replace Rhaenyra with. Second observation, Viserys dropped the dragon in episode 2 right in front of Alicent, who then had it repaired and returned it to Viserys as a gift. So that dragon seemed to specifically allude to the idea that Alicent could bear Viserys a dragon son. Well, here is that dragon son, dropping a dragon, just like his dad. And right as Rhaenyra speaks of dying boars squealing like dying children. So yeah, this is extremely ominous. But then as we know, this show has been billed from the beginning as the story of a civil war fought by House Targaryen against itself. So we know some sort of succession crisis has to be coming or else we wouldn't have much of a show. House of the Dragon seems to be communicating this through omens, as well as through the sinister whisperings of Hobart Hightower. 
All right, thanks very much, friends. And don't forget to join me every Sunday night right after House of the Dragon for the live House of Flying D's breakdown with Girl Nettles and Grey Waste Tim, where all your questions are answered. Cheers, everyone. See you soon.